Have you ever felt misunderstood? Have you ever been hurt by something that another has said? Have you ever felt like you've not been heard? Have you ever felt betrayed? Have you ever had to work through a a misunderstanding or a disagreement? Have you ever disagreed on decisions? Have you ever held a grudge? Have you ever struggled with loneliness though friends surround you? Have you been let down? Have you ever struggled to resolve a conflict? I don't want to be Captain Obvious this morning, but the answer to all of those questions for every one of us is yes. Everyone in this room, everyone watching, everyone listening, is involved in or is near broken relationships as I speak. Some of you have been severely hurt by the actions and the words of others. And even this week in preparation, not wanting to address you from the word of God as though you are a puzzle to be solved, as though conflict is something that comes and goes, it's common, it's, every one of us experiences it, so it really isn't that big of a deal. Uh, I've been moved this week in, in prayer, just recalling faces and scenarios that you have walked through and that some of you are walking through. My heart is burdened for you. I ache. As many of you, some of you, your eyes burn hot with weariness from the tears. Your hearts are heavy. Your heart is heavy with the the ache and the weight of hurt. I want you to know this week I've had you in mind and I've prayed for you asking God to make Philemon uh, a balm of sorts to mend your wounds. And yet, although many of us struggle with relational conflict, the reality is that the world in which we live in, the world doesn't have answers. The world doesn't have lasting answers to relational conflict. The world provides many temporary fixes. The church has the answer. And sadly, many, even within the church, don't lean into the answer and run to the world for temporary fixes when it comes to their relational brokenness. Well, it's this very topic that we see addressed in this small letter of Philemon. In God's massive grace and mercy and kindness, he has preserved this small letter to pastor us, to remind us that the gospel is the answer to all of our problems and that the gospel changes everything. For those who trust in Christ, by faith, the gospel changes everything, including the brokenness in our relationships. When we apply the gospel and we live out its implications in our relationships, there really is hope. And so this morning, if you are hurting, if you're wounded, if relationships that you're 
living in and around are marked by brokenness, you're struggling, I want you to know that there is hope. And this small book is a gospel goldmine as it helps us think through gospel implications for our lives. Paul admonishes Philemon to see that the gospel is not to be compartmentalized. What you believed in and who you trusted in is not meant to be a mere wedge in your life. It's meant to overtake all of it. And this small letter encourages us, challenges us to remember that Jesus is in the business of changing lives. And if you have been affected by the gospel, then you have been infected by his Holy Spirit And that changes everything, including our relationships. And Paul's letter to Philemon, we're able to sort of get a behind-the-curtain look at what Paul's counsel would be to someone who's experiencing relational tension and relational brokenness. And so I want to pray. I want to pray that we would all benefit from Paul's counsel to Philemon. And I want to pray that we would be reconciled in our relationships. We recently walked through the small letter of James. And in it, James makes clear that the aim of knowing great truths about God is not merely so that we would store it up and just sit on it. It's that it would make a difference, that it would lead to life change, that it would compel us to act. And in the same way, Paul is going to lean into Philemon encouraging him to be reconciled. And even just as a reminder, as Hunter mentioned earlier, this evening we will be observing the Lord's Supper. Paul and Jesus make clear that it is of paramount importance, the unity that we have with one another. That, there, that we, not, uh, we ought not take the supper with hearts, that are at odds with other brothers and sisters. And so my prayer is even this afternoon that if there's brokenness in any relationships that you have, that the Spirit would lead you to be reconciled so that together this evening we could partake in a worthy manner of uh, the supper. And so join me in, in prayer as we get started. Our gracious God, we approach your throne in need of a lot of mercy. And the reason that we approach your throne with such a great need is because it's the only throne that is sufficient to meet our need. And it's that way because of the one who sits on the throne. And so for the next few minutes, would you just allow us to come face to face with you? Would you meet us in our need? Would you heal and mend brokenness? Would you lead us to to not resign and settle in going through life with just a wake of broken relationships behind us? No, your people are to be peacemakers. It should be evident to the world that our standards and our values are different. And so use this sermon to grow us in those ways. Help us become the church that honors you in our relationships with others. And so for that to happen, what hits our ears must be far 
more superior than what's on these pages in this sermon. So make the sermon that is heard far more effective than the one that is preached. For your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to the small letter of Philemon in between Titus and Hebrews. You may, uh, you may even miss it, 25 verses. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to follow along in the New American Standard Pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 169 in the New Testament. I don't know what 169 in the Old Testament is, but if you go there, you will be confused. So in the New Testament, page 169. This is the shortest of all of Paul's letters, only 25 verses. This would naturally follow Colossians because it was written from the same place by the same person, delivered by the same people at the same time. And so this brief but yet enormously instructive letter, as we'll find out, it's personal. But it's not private. It has the church in view but it's written particularly to Philemon. Other individuals are mentioned. The church is addressed. And just even in that, Paul is not allowing us to escape the reality. For both the need of reconciliation and then the place where that's to be worked out. It's to be worked out in community. It's to be worked out in the midst of other people. And so the backdrop of this book and, and, and the way in which the Holy Spirit brought uh, three very different men together is, is, is pretty compelling. And so imagine with me, the year is 49 to 51 AD. Paul is ending his second missionary journey in Ephesus. The gospel has gone forth in Ephesus. People are being converted in Ephesus. A church is planted in Ephesus, hence his letter to the Ephesians. But not only did the gospel take root in Ephesus towards the end of his second missionary journey, some who were in Ephesus hearing the gospel, coming to Christ, then went back to their hometowns proclaiming the same message and then seeing another church planted. And that's exactly what we find. Epaphras and Philemon, who were in Ephesus, when they hear the gospel preached, God miraculously saves them. They go back then to their hometown Colossae to spread this gospel and to plant a church. And so fast forward 10 years. 60, 62 AD, Paul's missionary journeys are complete. He's arrested under false pretenses. He kind of goes through one mock trial after another. People, there are coups that are trying to take his life. You can read about this at the end of the book of Acts. And so Paul then appeals to Caesar in order for a hearing. He's then shipped off to Rome on a harrowing boat journey. When he arrives in Rome, he's chained to a Roman guard in house arrest. And it's during this time in Colossae that a man named Onesimus. There's a man named Onesimus who's a bondservant. He's a slave to Philemon. Onesimus runs away. And, and in the letter of Philemon, we, we can piece together verse 18 hints that he's likely stolen from Philemon. Where would you go if you were a runaway fugitive? You would go to a large city in order to blend in, in order to not be found out, potentially as far away from the place in which you're running from. 
And so what do we find Onesimus doing? He goes to Rome, some 1,800 miles away from Colossae. It would be a good place to go if you wanted to go unnoticed. And yet while he is there, he encounters Paul. He encounters Paul as a fugitive on the run. He's gloriously saved out of his sin. He's converted. He's made a follower of Jesus. And commentators, it's pretty interesting. Some would say, well, he went there. He went to Rome to look for Paul because he knew that Paul knew uh, knew Philemon. Most commentators say he was running to hide and God in great mercy and providence so orchestrated the events of Onesimus' life that he interacts with Paul and he finds Paul. And I just imagine that scenario of saying, tell me about yourself after Paul shares the gospel and and getting to know him and, and God miraculously saves Onesimus. I just imagine the conversation. Where are you from? I'm from Colossae. Paul says, huh. I've got two really good friends in Colossae, Epaphras and Philemon. Do you know them? I just just imagine this conversation of Onesimus thinking, out of all of the places to run to, I come to Rome and I meet the guy who knows my master. Just classic. I'm using my sanctified imagination at this point, but classic trying to hide from God only to realize that he's always steps ahead, orchestrating exactly what we need. And just by an aside, if you're here this morning and you are running from God, you are better off yielding. You're better off yielding. And in the wake of the saving change that takes place in Onesimus' heart, He devotes himself to caring for the aging apostle Paul. Paul grows in his love and affection for Onesimus. He thinks it's right then to send him back. And so he sends him back to Philemon with a letter in hand. He sends him with uh, Tychicus, who is going to, uh, uh, he's going with Onesimus, carrying one letter to the church at Colossae, and then one letter to Philemon. And this letter is written to persuade Philemon. It's written to persuade Philemon to live in accordance with the gospel in the midst of a difficult, of a broken relationship. I mean, the story really does have all the makings for a great movie or TV show, but the ending would be unexpected. The ending would be unexpected because it's not about vengeance. And it's not about repaying evil with evil. And it's not about doubling down on being harsh. Now, the ending would be expected because the focus of this letter is faithful obedience. The reality is that our relationships with other Christians should look a certain way. Because we have professed faith in Christ. And the presence of the Holy Spirit, which comes by faith in Jesus, should have a discernible effect on our relationships. And so what Paul is writing to say is that, Philemon, the gospel really does change everything. It changes everything. And so the focus this morning that we will see is that gospel grace leads to gospel love, which produces gospel community. Gospel grace leads to gospel love, which produces gospel community. 
At this point, I am aware, I've been aware all week of what potentially could be the elephant in the room for this series. Uh, I'm aware of what has been a stumbling block for some as it relates to believing the Bible. And that's the mention and the uh, realization of the issue of slavery. Uh, there's much to be said about uh, this topic. This sermon series is not the place for that. And so I just want to highlight three uh, notes about the topic of slavery, uh, maybe to just help set the context of this letter. Uh, number one, the issue at hand in this letter is not slavery. The issue is the expectation, the the expectations and the mandates that are placed upon a relationship when Jesus is the central connecting point of that relationship. And so uh, the cultural moment, I've been compelled, I've struggled all week, the cultural moment would say, Justin, speak much to this. But this morning I preach with restraint because I don't believe that the text leads me there. This issue is about relational reconciliation in the midst of brokenness. Number two, the sinful, brutal, dehumanizing, race-based slavery of America is not the context of slavery here. And in no way am I trying to gloss over a hard, abused, broken institution, the reality is that one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. Slavery then was less of a, a form of oppression and more of a way to even have economic improvement. It was indentured servitude, and it wasn't made up of just one race in order to oppress them. It was made up of all ethnicities and races, in fact, church history would attest that Alexander the Great had a slave whose name was Aristotle. It wasn't a, an institution where people couldn't rise up and, and, uh, and flourish. In fact, some of the most brilliant, smartest, uh, and most talented sold themselves into slavery. And then number three, nowhere does the Bible promote or condone slavery. Human slavery and any treatment of someone else as property or object, that's evil. That's not good. In fact, not only does the Bible, not only does the Bible not condone it, the Bible actually subverts it at every turn. I was helped this week, just sort of the key that unlocked some perspective for me is commentator J.B. Lightfoot. Listen to what he says. In the New Testament in general, and in Philemon in particular, a principle is put forth which must, in the end, prove fatal to slavery. What's that principle? That principle is neighbor love, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. And in particular, the kind of neighbor love that's lived out in Philippians 2. The consideration of the interest of others as more important in higher regard than even my own interest. When this is lived out, Lightfoot says, whenever 
slaves are admitted to the highest privilege possible. That's kneeling side by side with his owner at the holy table. Slavery is doomed. The slave, notwithstanding his slavery, is now Christ's freed man. And the free, notwithstanding his liberty, is Christ's slave. Lightfoot says, and this is exactly what the letter of Philemon gives us, a gospel solvent that melts and disintegrates and dissolves prejudice and alienation in relationships. And that always leads to reconciliation. And so this morning, I want to consider two points. Two points in hopes of being transformed by this life-changing gospel. The gospel really does change everything. Number one, the gospel changes who we are. The gospel changes who we are. We see this in verses one through three. Everyone in the letter has been transformed by the gospel. An exception is probably made for Demas, who at the end we find out has abandoned Paul. Paul was transformed in Acts chapter nine on the road to Damascus. He was zealous in persecuting gospel believers to to becoming zealous for gospel believers. Before he's he's converted, he is like the Jewish bin Laden. I mean, he's a terrorist against Christians. You couldn't fathom in the day that there would be any other that was more far removed from the grace of God, and yet the grace of God found Saul. Christ owns Paul, and Christ is the reason for his imprisonment. And that's how the letter introduces, that's that's who we're introduced to at the beginning of the letter. We're introduced to Paul the prisoner. Paul usually identifies himself as an apostle, but here he identifies himself as a prisoner, a bondservant, a slave, Many believe that it's because he's officially and formally in prison at the time that he's writing this, and he's reminding Philemon of the sacrifices that, have, that, that he's had to make that come with following Christ, and he is going to appeal to Philemon to make the same sacrifices. I love what Luther says. Luther says, Paul empties himself of his rights as a prisoner to compel Philemon also to waive his rights. Paul the prisoner. I believe Paul also identifies himself as a prisoner, as a slave, as a bondservant, to identify with Onesimus, thus showing solidarity with this now dear saint in the Lord. He left a pagan rebel. He will return a redeemed saint. Christian brothers and sisters, just a reminder this morning, this designation is true of you. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been affected by the gospel, you are now a prisoner of Christ. And I say that, and that shouldn't shouldn't weigh on you like a heavy burden. There should be something joyful in this. Christ owns you. Christ has mastery over you. You died to living life the way that you wanted to do it. 
And you've gladly yielded and bowed your knee in submission to his rule and his reign. Part of taking up our cross is, and, is the death to self and becoming alive to him. And so we gladly submit to him as our Lord and master. This isn't a buzzkill. It's not, okay, yeah, I, I became a Christian. And once I became a Christian, I'm now a slave and I'm a prisoner. And it's pretty terrible. I get heaven, but it's pretty terrible here. That's just the, that's nowhere to be found in the way Paul writes about what it means to be owned and ruled by Christ. And Paul even, he writes about this in other places. 1 Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You don't get to do what you want to do with your body. It's not yours. Your whole life has been ransomed, purchased, redeemed. Is it your belief that it is good and joy-filled to be under his rule, to be the prisoner of Christ? Is that your experience? And man, in a day where we love our democracy, that's not how Christ rules. No. We listen to him, we take from him, And we know that even when we don't understand it, it's for his glory and for our good. And here's the crazy thing. This is true no matter the circumstance. Paul is in prison. He's in prison. He's not wrestling with God thinking somehow God has forgotten his promises. Somehow it's not really good to be a slave to Christ, because if you're a slave to Christ, it leads you to prison. Actually, Paul's going to say, no, no, give me prison as long as I keep Christ. So too with us, no matter our condition, it is good. And so, so again, Luke 6, 27, uh, do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. I mean, this is, this is the life that the gospel calls us to live in response to who God is. And so that is a good thing. It doesn't seem good, but that is a good rule for us to be under. But we're not only introduced to Paul the prisoner, we're also introduced to brothers and sisters. Like familial language Paul uses here. We're introduced to Timothy. We're introduced to Philemon. We're introduced to Aphia and to Archippus. And all of that, Language, brothers and sisters. The the familial language helps us understand more of what our identities are in Christ. Not only are we slaves to Christ, we're also brothers and sisters. We're family to one another. Being a Christian means being taken out of isolation and placed into the family of God, whereby our relationships are now marked by a new reality. Right? Do you remember Jesus ministering, Matthew chapter 12? They go, no, no, Jesus, uh, your family's outside to see you. And Jesus says, no, no, the one who does the will of my father, that's my brother and my mother and my sister. I mean, Jesus flips our understanding of, of family. In fact, what Jesus in the New Testament will put before us is this reality that the gospel is thicker than blood. The gospel creates something that's even more permanent than biological family. And it doesn't mean that we neglect biological family, but it does mean that there is, there is something that we participate in together that's more binding than even the, the biological lineage of where we come from. 
And so Paul reinforces the truth that the gospel is indeed thicker than blood. Timothy is with Paul during the time of the writing. He's identified, uh, Paul at the beginning says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. It doesn't mean that he's the co-author. It means that he was there with him. And he addresses Philemon. He addresses him as beloved brother. He addresses him as fellow worker. He addresses him as the host of, of, of the house church that was meeting in his home. And so many people believe that Philemon was uh, a wealthy person who leveraged his resources for the glory of God. Many people believe that uh, Aphia, the sister that is mentioned, and Archippus, the fellow soldier, would be Philemon's wife and son. And, and while we, we have uh, no reason to believe either way, uh, we, we're not given definitive answers as to who they were, we do know that Archippus in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, is seen as a leader in the Colossian church. And so I wonder this morning, do you realize who you're seated, seated next to right now? Not literally the person right next to you, but just do you realize who is seated in this room? You are among brothers and sisters. You are among those who have been adopted out of their sin and out of isolation and placed together, not only in the universal collection of God's people, but then in the local expression. This isn't just a common designation for anyone, right? I say bro to many people, many who are not my bros. This isn't what Paul, Paul's not just saying, yeah, that's my sister and that's my brother. It's, just, it's not just a, a, a kind of a, a word on the street for female and male. No, Paul is saying there is a reality to the relationships that is meant to mark you now because of Christ. And we're to live in community with these under the rule of Christ. And then lastly, in verse, the end of verse two, so not only do we meet Paul the prisoner, gospel has changed his identity. We meet Timothy and Philemon and Aphia and Archippus. We meet all of these now gospel family. And at the end of verse two, and to the church in your house. To the church. To those who gather together, the called out ones. By necessity, meeting in a private home, because in Rome you couldn't meet in public. Christians couldn't meet in public. In 25 verses in this small letter, Paul, Paul mentions 12 people specifically. And he mentions the church in general. Why? Why? Because at the heart of Christianity is the gospel news that we are not only reconciled to our God through faith in Christ, but that we are also reconciled in one another, our relationships horizontally with people who are very different from us, it's, it's affected by the gospel. It has to be. James and Paul will say, if it's not affected, then you've not been infected by the gospel. If your relationships are not being affected by the gospel, then you haven't been infected by it. No matter what you profess, your life is preaching something else. I mean, just think about this list that makes up the church. In this list, you have prisoners. You have fugitive bond servants. 
You have fugitive, fugitive slaves. You have ordinary men and women. You have former murderers. You have cowards. You have a church planter. You have wives and sons and former Jews and Gentiles and tent makers and wealthy homeowners and doctors, timid, bold, young, old, known, unknown. What in the world could bring this, this group of eclectic people together, put them under one house where they say, this is my family. There's only one thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes everything. And that's what Paul is, is laboring for us to see. The church is meant to be a tangible, visible display of this otherworldly love that not only changes us in our eternal destination, but changes us in how we interact with other people. The local church is meant to be the diamond for God's global glory that's and that's captured in how the church belongs together. Brothers and sisters, friends, Jesus came to save all types. He came to save all kinds. The smart and the simple, the soft and the callous, the religious and the irreligious, the literate and the illiterate, the clean and the unclean, Asians and Africans, Latinos and Caucasians, the professionals and the criminals, the lawyers and the bankers, the accountants and the apprentices and the students and the strippers and the drug dealers and the sex offenders and the murderers and the cheaters and the liars, the rich and the poor, the married and the divorced, the single, the widowed, the faithful and the faithless, the young and the old, the successful and the failures, the somebodies and the nobodies, the hopeful and the hopeless, the broken and disturbed, literally every kind of people. He has come to bring them into his new people. This is what First Peter says in First Peter 2. You literally once were not a people, and only because of grace you are a people. And when you are his people, you don't call the shots. The gospel changes everything about you because it changes everything in you and around you. The gospel changes us individually. It changes us corporately. We belong to God and we belong to his people. And so Paul is writing to this diverse, eclectic group of individuals who have all bowed their knee in submission to just make them aware of the glorious realities of what it means to belong to him and how that informs everything else. The beauty of the relationships between Christians in a local church is actually a defense of the power of the gospel. Do you get that? In a day where it's easy to sort of talk about, all right, I need to know what could I say that would be a really good defense of Christianity. Jesus has so designed the church that this that we stand as a defense of the power of the gospel. And when our relationships look just like the world, that's a pretty, that's a, that's a pitiful defense. And Paul is laboring to remind Philemon and to remind these Christians that their relationships are meant to be different. And do you know what happens when you put that eclectic group of people together under one rule? Tensions and relational strife breaks out like crazy. <laughs> like crazy. But it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort. There's more at stake than merely our convenience and our comfort when it comes to mending relational brokenness.
The reality of Jesus affects how we love, how we seek reconciliation with one another. Here's the reality, friends. Jesus is going to save people that you don't like. And he may even put them in the same local church as you. And that's not license for you to begin to go church shopping. No, he's doing this for your good. He's doing this for their good. He's doing this for his glory. What we have in common in Christ is far greater than what makes us different. And in the midst of a host of preferences about whether or not we wear masks and whether or not we're social justice uh, looks this way or that way and whether or not we're going to vote for this party or that party. It's really good for us to hear that again. What we have in common in Christ is far greater than what makes us different. We have been purchased by the blood of the living God of the universe. And if you're here and you're not a member of a local church, I would just, I would, I would appeal to you, join a local church. Join a local church that's faithful to the gospel, that's faithful to preach the gospel, where your soul will be shepherded and where the mission will advance. It doesn't have to be here. We, we would love for it to be here. It doesn't have to be here. But when given the opportunity between choosing the easier route of isolation or choosing the harder but more satisfying route of community, choose community every time. Prisoners, family, church, all must live under and must live by the grace and peace of God. And that common saying there in verse 3, it would be easy to skim over it, but it's very profound. Why does he begin this small letter and end this small letter with a note of God's grace? Because grace sits at the center of the Christian faith. The gospel is only mentioned once, but this whole letter is an implication. It's the fruit of the gospel. William Tyndale, the first translator of the Bible into English, when he was translating the word gospel in 1525, this is how he translated the word gospel. The good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. I mean, he couldn't be, he, he couldn't say any more. That's how he translated gospel. The good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. And through the sinless life of Jesus Christ, through the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, and through his bodily resurrection, Jesus rescues all of his people from the just wrath of God. And he adopts them into his forever family. And you know what that brings? That brings peace with God and it brings peace with others. The good news of the Christian faith centers on a God who delights in saving and forgiving and adopting sinners. G.K. Chesterton said it best. He said, unless the gospel sounds like a gun going off, it hasn't been uttered at all. This news should sound like it should shock us. It's so good. The source of this salvation is God's grace alone his undeserved favor and kindness to guilty sinners to not give them what they are deserving of. And that's not because he sort of pushes sin aside as though it's not important. No, he actually exhausts his wrath for sin on his son. Salvation is not based on works. It's based on the loving kindness of God to the undeserving. 
And so if you think of the Christian faith and you think that, all right, there's this ladder that I've got to climb, you're thinking of the Christian faith all wrong. If you're thinking of the Christian faith and you think there's this cleaning up I've got to do, you're thinking of the Christian faith all wrong. It is based on God's grace and God's grace alone. And the result of that grace is peace with God and peace with one another. Most people in this world and in our city believe that if there is a God, you can get to him by being good. And the Christian faith is exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite of that. Other religions will say, be good, and then you can be loved by God. Jesus alone says, not only are you not good and can never get to God, but I love you, and I will come to you and do for you what you could never do on your own. And this is why it's good news, good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. Because in Jesus Christ, we, the guilty, find all of the love and satisfaction, the joy and the fulfillment and the purpose we will ever need. And so if you are not a Christian this morning, I just want to invite you to come out of your hiding, come out of your guilt, come out of your shame, and run to the one, run to the one who can heal all of your brokenness. He can heal every bit of brokenness. And that's not a promise that it will be healed quickly. But it is a promise that it will be healed finally. The only way to come out of your shame and come to him is through repentance, a turning of sin, dropping life as I know it under my good rule and bowing my knee in submission and living under his. It's by faith. It's by faith. And if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you, come to Christ by faith. Grace and peace isn't a played out greeting for Paul. Grace and peace is on repeat for Paul because he can't get over grace and peace. Following Jesus is nothing more than learning to treasure him more than anything else. The gospel changes everything. Not only does it change who we are, but number two, it changes. The gospel makes a difference in how we live with others. The gospel makes a difference in how we live with others. This point will be short because the rest of the book is going to flesh out this point. But I do just want to say in Paul's example there in verses four through seven, Paul, we see, we see modeled both by Paul and Philemon the kind of lives that are changed by the gospel. So if I could just highlight three encouragements for us as we think about how the gospel changes our lives. Number one, we see Paul regularly praying for his brother. One of the clearest ways that the gospel marks us is that we move away from a self-sufficient, independent, self-seeking avoidance of God to a dependent others seeking, enjoying God in and through our prayers. Prayer and thanksgiving usually live together. And so one way that we show our care and our affection and our love for one another is to pray for one another. And this is what Paul says. Paul says, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. And then in verse six, I pray that the fellowship of your faith 
may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. One person has said, prayer gets God's work done. And so the gospel makes a difference in how we live with one another. And so I'm curious this morning, is your life marked by faithful prayer for one another? This is not meant to heap guilt and condemnation. This is actually meant to be an encouragement. Because if you have forgotten what the life that is shaped by the gospel looks like, I'm praying that Paul, to his letter to Philemon, would encourage us, would blow wind in the sails. Are you regularly stirred to pray for others? Do you pray through the membership directory of the church? It's just a, that's a very, that's a, an act and a discipline with very low-hanging fruit. And you say, Justin, I don't know what to pray. Play, pray Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Pray Ephesians 1, 17 through 19. Or even here, pray Philemon 1, verse 6. You say, okay, I'll pray Philemon 1, verse 6, but what in the world does Philemon 1, 6 mean? It says, I pray that the fellowship of your faith, some of your translations read, the sharing of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in Christ Jesus. Which is in you for Christ's sake. And so we hear sharing of your faith and maybe fellowship of the faith and we think, okay, this is the evangelism verse, but this verse is not about evangelism. The word there for sharing, for participation, for fellowship, really it's, it's koinonia. It's the word that together we participate with one another in Christ. It's our common participation, the giving and the receiving of benefits enjoyed as a result of belonging to Christ. And Paul says, I pray that your participation together, that your enjoyment, the giving and the receiving of benefits, that your participation together in Christ would continue to be more effective as you begin to learn more and more of what is yours because of Christ. Paul makes the connection between what we have in Christ and how we live that out with others. And so as we come to terms with just how loving God is, we become more loving to others. As we understand his patience better, we become more patient to others. As we understand his forgiveness, we become more forgiving. As we understand his service, we serve others gladly. When we gather together or serve together or pray together, encourage or encourage one another, we take responsibility for one another, we check in for one another, we forgive and love one another, we build relationships with those that are different than us, all of that involves a deep sharing of our faith. And so whenever you live the one another's, you're not merely singing with one another. You're not merely praying for one another. You're not merely confessing your sin to one another. No, you are swimming in the, the ocean of gospel realities. And when you do that, and when I do that, we put on display his glory. And so we see the gospel makes a difference in how we live by the way in which we pray. But number two, it makes a difference in how we live because it gives us a love for God and a love for the saints. A love for God and a love for the saints. I mean, listen to verse five. Because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Jesus is the object of Philemon's love. Philemon is famous for his love for God and his love for the saints. 
Is that not, how many of us desire fame? I don't know how many do, but if, if we do, if we were ever going to, I wonder if we desire fame for that. That I would just, at, at, right, and if, if you say that, then you're not humble. Never mind, breaks down. Love and faith directed towards God is hardly a surprise. But Paul says, when love and faith towards God are in one's life, that ought to overflow to love and faith towards others. There's a love and faith that's to mark the saints. Normally, when Paul mentions love and faith, faith is first. But he's going to call Philemon to appeal to love concerning Onesimus. F.F. Bruce says, love and loyalty to the people of Christ provides visible evidence of love and loyalty to the unseen Christ. Love and loyalty to the people of Christ provides visible evidence of love and loyalty to the unseen Christ. Do others spiritual good, brothers and sisters. I've heard one pastor say, I don't understand what you say when you say, I am following Christ, if you are not doing spiritual good to other Christians. Do spiritual good. And if I, I'm, I'm wanting to be exhortive and I'm wanting to encourage us towards the end, but I also, I want to say, I think this church is marked by faithful prayers. I think this church is marked by people who have a love for God and a love for the saints. I'm just praying that this church would increase all the more in those types of people. And then last, finally, the gospel changes us by making us to be a refreshment to those around us. A refreshment to those around us. Look at what he says in verse 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Refreshment, imply, uh, refreshment implies depletion. Something is lacking, oftentimes tired and weary. It's the same word used here that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when he says, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, refreshment. We all have a need, and God has provided for us to find refreshment in gospel community. Some of us think gospel community is, the, is not refreshing because I have to serve, and I have to give, and I have to come to the end of myself over and over. And that's where Jesus would say, no, no, no. Live in community, but just take on my yoke. Take on my burden." Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ chooses to work through us by his gospel grace to give refreshment and rest to one another's souls. I need refreshment from you. And you need refreshment from me and from one another. Every single person who walks through these doors needs refreshment. Every one of us have fear within. We have trials without. And we need the refreshment that only gospel community can provide. It's not because it's something unique. It's because God in his great kindness has chosen to channel his love and mercy and grace through Christians to us. 
And so not only do you need that from others, but you need to avail yourself so that you can be used by God, by his Holy Spirit, to encourage and refresh others. The church ought to be an oasis in the desert of this world, a resting place along the highway of life where we encounter the love of Christ manifested in and through his people. And I just want to be clear, you will not find perfect refreshment here. We are not the place for perfect refreshment refreshment. That's only found in Christ. But we want to be a people who are constantly pointing one another to that perfect oasis and saying, I'm not there, but I want to walk with you so that we can both get there and drink deeply from that fountain and find refreshment. This church needs to be very patient. We need to be quick to forgive. We need to be long-suffering with one another. And that's, that, that's refreshing. That's unlike the world. You don't have to walk through the doors and be perfect. You don't have to be perfect to be a part of this community. In fact, you won't be perfect. And people aren't standing around ready to be critical about your imperfections. No, people are ready to give grace. People are ready to call you in love, to turn and to repent. And we want to grant grace and we want to be quick to forgive. Are you life-giving to people around you? And again, while we need to grow, I'm so thankful that this church is full of life-giving people, people who are cautious and who beware of cynicism and having critical spirits. There are a host of ways we can be refreshing to others. I would just ask you this week to pray, how can I offer refreshment in the life of another church member? Just pray that. And then ask the Lord to make you a part of that solution. Friends, that's what we have today. This is going to be the basis of Paul's plea to Philemon. You have been given such rich gospel grace. You have shown that in your gospel love that has manifested itself in gospel community. Philemon, and now you have yet again another opportunity. And it's a hard circumstance, and it's not going to be easy. But it's an opportunity for you. It's an opportunity for Onesimus. It's an opportunity for the church. And so run again to the place of dying to self and do what is right. And friends, this is what you and I have today. And this is what we have in the days and the weeks and the months and the years ahead as we live life together. We have an opportunity to live out the gospel in community with one another. The gospel really is the key to our broken relationships. And the church is the context for living out the Christian life. And so my prayer has been that God would be pleased to make us a serving church that's marked by love and faith towards Christ Jesus and for all of the saints so that each one of us might be marked by a growing spiritual knowledge and understanding. And the church would be a picture, a display of gospel reconciliation. And the church would not be a picture of alienation. To God be the glory for great things he has done and he desires to do. Let's pray. God, as we get to the end of these seven verses, we're mindful of the need to walk in obedience until your word has gone forth. 
and now your servants, we listen. And so in this moment of silence, show us how we ought to respond to the gospel of grace. For your good, for our good, and for your glory, we pray.